Hello and welcome back to Ranking 76, where we are ranking the most notorious and infamous Western figures in American history. I am Eric. And I'm Matt. And we are doing number four and five today. This is our first double feature because these two are impossible to separate if you know anything about Tenskwatawa or uh, Tecumseh. Um, so before we get started, typically... I don't tell Matt anything about the figures we're going to cover, and that is largely true today, but because I have gone back and forth in my head about a dozen times on who to cover first and who needs to cover when, it was just easier to just lump them on the same day right before New Year's Day, so hopefully you guys have plenty of time to, to listen to them. Special episodes are always, always a good time. Yeah, they're going to be long, too. There is a lot of background. So before we get into the actual episode itself, I have, feel like I need to do a little bit of disclaimers just to start off. One, I kind of alluded to this. If we're just looking at the basic word count of when I'm doing research, these are going to be longer episodes, mainly because there's a lot of background that's going to be needed going into it. So think of it as today we're covering Tecumseh uh, and Tenskwatawa, but next month we're going to go cover a pharaoh, Ramses II, and then we're going to go cover Louis XVI, whatever it is. We would need to do a fair amount of background going into those episodes. Talking about these individual tribes are no different. They have a very complex history uh, with the U with U.S. So. Keep that in mind. With that said, these might also be a little bit different in tone because, to be completely honest with you, there's just not a whole lot that's funny when it comes to U.S. and indigenous peoples' related history. Uh, we're going to have as much fun as we can, but tone might be a little bit different. Uh, with that, I also have zero tribal affiliation, so these episodes are written with full of respect intended to the individual tribes. Any mistakes I made based off of mispronunciations or uh, tribal hierarchy, uh, please reach out to me. I'd love to learn. I'm getting really interested and fascinated by this. And then finally, as I said before, these two are impossible to separate. So the story may get clunky. I hope not. But Normally, you hear them both together, not separate, but they definitely have very different roles. So, will we see both of them, or will their story overlap at all? Yes, there will be a lot of overlap between them. I think I have it spaced out enough to where it doesn't affect, and I'll also, I did also have to jump around the timeline a little bit, but I'll point that out when we get to it. So, I think that's enough admin. Are we ready for this? Yes. Tenskwatawa. He was originally born in Lalushiga in 1775. Do not get attached to Lalushiga because he's going to have a little bit, a few different names, so don't get attached to that one. But for accuracy's sake, he was born Lalushiga in 1765. He was born as a set of triplets, which thinks great. Unfortunately, the number three is considered a bad omen for the Shawnee. Luckily for him, one of his brothers actually dies in infancy which makes him a twin. What would the tribe have done if they didn't? It's just a bad omen. I don't think they're maybe some shunning. They wouldn't have like got rid of the third one or anything uh, crazy like that. 
Not that I, not that I believe, I do not believe so. Uh, it wouldn't be malicious if it was. Uh, things get worse for Lalushiga because that same year, his father is killed fighting the Virginia militia. He doesn't even have memories with his mother because his mother leaves when Lalushiga is only three years old. Now, we'll get into that into a little bit. Uh, as he's growing up, he grows a nickname, Lalawithika, which could either mean Rattler or Noisemaker. I think how we would dictate it, this nickname, it would probably translate to loudmouth. Sounds like he wasn't particularly a quiet child. He just refused to shut up. On one particular day, he was noisier than usual because at a young age, he accidentally shoots his eye out with an arrow. Because Don't know how it happens. Uh, I don't even know how or why you would point that end of the arrow towards your eye. But because of the injury, Lalawithika is not a good hunter. And considering the Shawnee took a lot of pride in their hunting abilities, and his brother is actually named in part for an animal known for its hunting skills, this actually kind of brought some shame onto him as he was growing up, which may explain uh, some of his actions growing up. So now we need to go outside of the tribe, uh, specifically to 1768, at Fort Stanwix, the Iroquois nation sold Shawnee hunting land to the British. Yes, another tribe sold another tribe's uh, land. Americans, or soon-to-be Americans, also start moving on the land at a pretty high clip. After the colonists declare their independence, many tribes are split on the allegiance, on their allegiance. The Shawnee get on, stayed on the British side uh, mainly because they believe that the British are more likely to stop the colonists from moving onto their land. However, when the Treaty of Treris is signed, there is no mention of Native American lands, but it does concede basically the land between the Mississippi River and the colony's borders to the Americans, including all of Shawnee land. In order to combat this, the Shawnee and other tribes meet at the Council at the Glaze. Tribes themselves are independent, as we're going to see more in the Council's episode. But in this particular council, over 30 tribes attend. So all the Native Americans got together to form a big group to take down the Americans? Not all, because, again, we're talking as if it's no different than if today Canada and America and Mexico would all meet at a, a meeting, would all meet together. They're very independent, and all of them have different relations with the Americans. Uh, the Shawnee are almost always on the opposing side of the Americans. A lot of that has to do with, again, they sided with the British in the American Revolution. But there are tribes who believe the Americans will protect them better or they're better trade partners or they'll leave them alone. Um, so to get 30 of them kind of aimed at the Americans, it's kind of, it's kind of a lot, though. It is a lot. It's a lot to, to fight on. It is a band. And we'll get into this more, but Native Americans are going to need to band together in order to, fight, to keep Americans out. There's, there's no They're coming. It's how do we combat them with this. Right. So it seems like a fight is going to be happening uh, after the tribes form their confederation. Right before going into battle, however, the U.S. and the tribes meet at Fort Greenville in 1792. The two sides meet and go back and forth for about two weeks. Uh, one Wyandotte chief expressed his, tribe, uh, expressed his tribe's view. We regard this side of the Ohio as our property. You say you cannot remove your people, and we cannot give up our land. 
We are sorry we cannot come to an agreement. Pretty much encapsulates the two weeks. Thomas Jefferson, who is now Secretary of State, would, wrote, would write on the negotiations that they had completely failed, that a, that a, quote, a war must settle our difference. He then admitted that we, quote, expected nothing else. We had gone into the negotiations only to prove to our citizens that peace was unattainable. Part of that proof from the American side is that they had already started uh, moving troops into the area before the meeting already started. The British, still a very big part, were still in control of Canada. They kind of love the tension that is rising between the United States and the tribe. Back then, America is just establishing itself. There is no guarantee it's going to turn into the powerhouse. In fact, there's no, the British think it can crumble. If this American experience happened to crumble, wouldn't it be convenient with the British in Canada just to come back and scoop all of its land? So they're egging the Shawnee and the tribes along. The Shawnee and the indigenous peoples know that they're being played in part of a much larger game, saying, quote, war or peace, depending on the conduct of the British, if they help, it would be probably be a war. But if they would not, it would be peace. The Indians would no longer be set on like dogs by the British. So the Native Americans hated the British? No. Well, I can't speak for all of them, but they're a necessary ally. As of right now, the British have, well, actually the French are actually the big trade group that treat them more fairly because they meet them more one-on-one. Um the British are just more likely to keep colonists off or Americans off of Indian land or Native American land. Americans just want the territory because they're a growing country. Right. They're expanding. The British are, we'll say the, the most fair. They're the medium porridge. If we're going with that, uh, I can't remember the third. Was that Goldilocks? Yeah. Goldilocks Goldilocks. and the three. They're the medium porridge. If anything. Uh-huh. Okay. So the just right porridge. They're just there. We can tolerate dealing with the British. Okay. Now we need to go into Little Turtle's War. So this newfound confederacy is formed behind Chief Little Turtle. Again, when I say that he's leading the confederacy, just think a lot of bands of tribes behind him. There is no president of United of Tribes. Keep that very clear in the next two episodes. There's more of this in Tecumseh's episode, but a, defensive, a definitive battle is fought in 1794 near modern-day Fort Wayne, Indiana, and what will now be co- and what will be called the Battle of Fallen Timbers. The Americans had about 3,000 men, and they went up against Chief Blue Jacket and approximately 1,100. So the Americans have a three-to-one advantage. Lalawithika is included. This would have been his first fight, again, at least against the Americans. But it isn't written down what he did. In fact, there are rumors that he was already drunk, or at least tipsy. I mean, three to one, those odds are terrible. I think I'd be a little tipsy, too. I would need some liquid courage going into that fight. So it's determined early on that this is a route, and natives are not going to be able to take the fort. So the natives run to a nearby British fort, asked to be let in. The Redcoats stood by the gate. Bayonets fixed. Muskets ready to fire. 
the Native Americans run to the door and wait for the door to open. And they wait for the door to open. When suddenly they hear, I cannot let you in. And the British keep the doors closed, not allowing them in. They are then allowed to scatter. Apparently, the British wanted to talk a game on backing the Native Americans, but really didn't want to fight the Americans so close after the Revolutionary War. So basically they said, oh yeah, we have your back, we got you, don't worry about it. But then when push came to shove, they're like, ooh, actually we just got done with this huge war against the uh, now Americans and uh, we can't really let you in because we do not want to get in another war with them. Essentially, yes. But again, I don't want to say this is, it's very complex. But essentially, yes. But it's more like the British going into where ears like, boy, aren't those Americans bad? How about you go fight them, huh? I bet you won't go up and punch them in the face. Oh, wouldn't that be terrible? And then just kind of sit back in the chairs. So they did a more of what I like to call fire starting, where they lit a fire and said, hey, let's see what happens. Yes. Yep. That's about right. So after a battle of fallen timbers, uh, the tribes are forced to negotiate with the Americans for peace and do so at Fort, at Fort Greenville in 1794. This is a big treaty, so remember this treaty, the Fort Greenville Treaty of 1794. Uh, nine chiefs relinquish all but the northwestern corner of Ohio. Uh, the treaty allows the U.S. to build forts and trading fort posts on, on Indian land. And it also requires the Sinees to abandon their hunting and to farm exclusively. The Shawnee are not one of the Sinees. This does not matter to the United States. So they are only allowed to farm. Like, they can only farm from now on. Correct. The Shawnee are a hunting people. If you remember from Daniel Boone's episode, it was, Daniel Boone was actually going up against the Shawnee, and that was into Kentucky. So now they are... They went as far as Kentucky, and now they're pushed back uh, into Ohio. Why it's di why the United States wants Native tribes to be hunter to be farmers is one. It's easier to I don't want to say box them in, but it's, really, it's easier to make more defined land. It's also easier to trade with them. The system that eventually comes up is what's called the factory system, which I think when I explain this, people might view this more towards 100, 100 years later. But right around the Jefferson presidency, the factory system of basically we're going to establish these trade ports and we're going to get native dependent on our goods. So I guess we had a college professor, uh, Dr. Bolin, who would make the example of they would trade a, a steel pot because once, once you get used to boiling water into a steel pot, it's much easier. A want becomes a need. When before, when you're boiling water, you would have to basically uh, gut a pig, put the water inside the stomach, put that over a fire, and then that's how you boil your water. Well, if you have a steel pot that you can just reuse and reuse and reuse, that helps. But we'll get into that just in a little bit more. But that's why the government wants the natives sedentary, so that it's easier to keep them in line i was just gonna say can keep them in check because they can just be like hey yeah we have this stuff and we'll give it to you right. you know you just need to we're you gonna know, trade it do with anything. you i have more detail i have a few quotes coming up here in a bit 
and like okay. it's going to be very difficult to stay unbiased and i'll be i'm not even going to try to hide the unbiased because it's, it's just it's, it's horrible what the u.s government does in 1802 lala is now quote an irredeemable drunkard and depends on Tecumseh to help support him and his family of two wives and four children. Lalawithika begins practicing medicine in the hopes of becoming a healer. Tecumseh and his wife still had to help with the house and feed Lalawithika and his family. When he was sober, however, he was charismatic. Tecumseh, as we'll find out, was not the easiest person to get used to, but he was always attached to his brother and always saw something to it. When years later, when he is no longer Lalawithika, he is described as, quote by Lewis Cass, quote, he is shrewd, sagacious, and well qualified to acquire the influence over those about him. Quote, Some even believe he was more eloquent than Tecumseh when he was sober and clear-headed, and we'll learn later Tecumseh could give one heck of a speech. But... He's uh, suffering from alcoholism because now we need to go into liquor's effects on Native Americans. Lalawithka is one, is one of many indigenous peoples who struggle with alcoholism. Liquor is a relatively new substance for Native Americans. For Americans, however, this is just something you did daily. Liquor was something you would drink from wake up to, uh, to the end of the day. Liquor for Native Americans, however, was disastrous. When a trader witnessed the native natives possibly drinking liquor for the first time, he said, quote, they screamed all night in the woods and acted like madmen. No one who has ever seen an Indian drunk can possibly have any conception of it, as if they all had been changed into evil spirits. Because of this, many villages sank into despair, drunken fits of rage, beatings, and even murders. Family will attack family. One bystander saying, quote, This drinking never passes without a shredding of blood. Most of them look as if they had been passed through with some great sickness, as if it is the way to destroy them themselves. There is a story of a Shawnee woman who was selling her crops and her household belongings to sell whiskey when she, quote, sat down and drank so long that she gave up the ghost and fell over dead. So others slaughtered their li- uh, slaughtered their livestock. Children would fall victim to neglect. Uh, and elders who had seen all of this trouble would still succumb to alcoholism. Early on in Thomas Jefferson's presidency, Little Turtle, who just led the rebellion against the Americans, actually meets with the president and tells him, Father, your children are not wanting an industry, but it is this introduction of fatal poison that keeps them poor. Your children have not command over themselves that you have. Therefore, before anything can be done to advantage this evil, must be remedied. Little Turtle would then go on to describe, as an indigenous person just walking by, uh, what their experience could be when they were offered liquor. Some will say, no, I do not want it. They will then go until they come up to another house, where they find more of the same kind of drink. Then it is offered again. They refuse and again for a third time, but finally, on the fourth or fifth time, one accepts it, and then takes a drink, and after getting one, he wants another, and then he wants a third and a fourth, till all his senses have left him. 
When the reason comes back to him, he then pulls up and finds where he has left his peltry. He is met with the answer, you have drunk them. When the native asks for my gun, it is gone. Where is my shirt? Farmer is to have said, you have sold it all for whiskey. He would continue with these tours, speaking with a group of shakers. Brothers, when our young men have been out hunting and are returning home loaded with skins and furs on their way as if they have come across some whiskey, the white man sells it to them to take a little drink. Say all that, even though it's incredibly depressing, to tell you Jefferson and higher-ups absolutely know this is a problem. Is there anywhere that said that they were well aware of it and they were trying to fix it, or did they know it was a problem and they just didn't care and were just letting it happen? The U.S. establishes what is now known as the factory system. Historian Jeffrey Warren cites a letter between William Henry Harrison and Thomas Jefferson with the description that the natives would incur debt beyond what they would be able to pay. And the only way to pay the United States back was to sell more land. So not only was the alcohol helpful, if you can get them addicted to alcohol and get them basically in debt that they can't pay out of, they have to sell it with land. This was absolutely strategy. So they introduced the Native Americans to alcohol. They'd get them addicted to it and would get them so far in debt that then the Americans would buy their land from them to settle the debts. Yes. Is there any way that they did this on purpose? Because to me, it sounds like this was their plan all along. I don't want to say happy accident, and this might be a better question for a Jerry Landry over at Presidencies of uh, the United States. If it wasn't, I don't want to say it was a happy accident, but the Americans are looking to get land as much as they can. And if the strategy, again, so if they're no longer hunting, they're no longer able to leave their land because they're farming. By the way, you're also turning hunters into farmers. Well, you can't just put something in the ground and expect it to grow. It's right. going to take years to figure out how to be farmers, right? So it's not even if one bad season of crops goes bad, well, now you're already in a dire despair. Americans, I don't even think if you ask an everyday American back then, they would have thought like, yeah, I just have alcohol. This is what we do. Not understanding that a tribe who was brand new to the substance and how addictive it can be, I don't think they would have saw that as the average person. And maybe if you gave Thomas Jefferson some truth serum back then, I think he would have said, yeah, we knew what we were doing and this is what this is the way we wanted it to play out. Um, well, that's just what it seems to me. I mean, he knew it was a problem and then they came up with this law. What was it called? Like the factory system? Where they were, they were like, yeah, don't worry about it. We'll just buy your land from you when you are so in debt to us. I mean, I feel like it's, I feel like they knew this is how we get land. Yes, it was a strategy. It was a, a Machiavellian means justify the means kind of thing. Or the ends justify the means. I mean, it's some pretty shady stuff. I'm not going to lie. Those first couple quotes of Little Turtle, those were to Jefferson. To his face, that was a meeting with the president of the United States. So, there's no defending. There's no way you can say, yeah, he kind of knew there was a problem. No, it was a full-blown issue. He knew there was a problem. Now, whether he wanted to, well, it's not even like alcoholism was a, a new idea for Americans. 
like we've always had an issue with alcohol in in the United States. It's why there was literally a brought in prohibition. So to think like alcoholism was not something an idea Thomas Jefferson or they were used to is a fallacy. They knew what they were doing. They just they just squeezed out the best possible outcome for the country. But anyway, the whole goal was to attain land. Now, if the Americans had, and Jefferson and the government had a better weapon, they would have used that weapon, right? So they would have, if whatever resource they could have used to sell, they would have done that. Uh, Alcohol just happened to be the most damaging to the tribes, right? Uh, Jefferson would actually write on the ability to get land. He wrote, the American settlers were gradually circumscribed and approached the, the Indians, who in time will either incorporate with us as citizens of the United States or re- be removed beyond the Mississippi. Jefferson continued, some tribes are advancing on those of these English deductions will have no effects, but the backwards will yield and be thrown back further into barbarism and misery, and we shall be obliged to meet the beast into the forest, into the stony mountains. Fun stuff, right? Really uplifting. This is great. Fills me with joy. It's so great. Okay. Between the winter of 1804 and 1805 is difficult, especially after an influenza outbreak. Scarce game because they can't hunt, and their crops failed because they're new at farming, even if it was a particularly good season. Add that and the steady tension between the chiefs who signed the Treaty of Greenville And those who do not remember, it was only nine chiefs that signed that treaty. Everyone else, including the Shawnee, did not sign the treaty who also had their land taken. When one chief succumbs to influenza, it is rumored that he was actually poisoned, which is almost paranoia level of uh, tension, we'll say. Uh, Tecumseh himself is struggling just to hold his own tribe together. Again, I should say, there's no confederacy at this point. After Greenville, they all kind of go away, if that wasn't made clear. So, Lalawithka is approximately 30 years old. He has a reputation of being a mean drunk who would steal liquor, and while drunk, he would intimidate women into having sex with him. He even fails as a medicine man when he does try um, to turn his life around. He has said to have gone and drink and cry over his failures for day at a time inside of his wigwam. In April of 1805, he is sitting in front of his fire, legs crossed and possibly, though very likely drunk. There is one source I use that kind of disputed he might not have been drunk, but he probably was. Uh, he's in a blanket wrapped around him and he stares into the fire when he recalled, when he is recalled that all of his sins suddenly, quote, struck him with a deep and awful sense of the life ill-spent. He is sitting in front of the fire, crying. He begs for the Great Spirit to show him some way to escape. The Great Spirit speaks to him and tells him the agreements between him and the Eastern, the Eastern tribes and the Americans had showed them how bad they had proven for the Shawnee. As the Great Spirit is telling him this, he reaches down into the, grab, into the fire to grab something to light his pipe. He raises it to his lips and paws and collapses onto the fire. He is pulled from the fire by his wife and his neighbors cannot wake him up. 
They go through the night believing that he is dead and actually start preparing his body for burial. The next day, Lalawithicus wakes up. When he recovers enough to talk, he describes the very power of a vision he had with the Great Spirit and that they had shown him. He describes that two phantoms lead him down a road. When the road comes up to a fork, to the right is what we would describe as heaven. Those in heaven had, quote, shed all evil and liquid waves and become good. Lalawithicus, however, is not given the choice. He is there to follow and observe. Those who did not shed their evil ways were forced to go down the left side of the fork, which is led to them by an evil spirit, where he then co comes up on three houses. Pa they pass the first two houses uh, that all have a way out from what we would describe as hell into heaven. On the third house, however, it is called eternity. There is no path. If you go into the third house, there is no escape. Those in the third house held on to their evil ways. Their crimes include drinking liquor, beating their wives, committing murder, practicing witchcraft. Lalawithika looks around and even sees a few in front of them in the a few in front of the house with a very large crowd in front of them. He also then very shortly has a second vision where Tenskwatawa is allowed to take the right fork in the road and go into what we've known as heaven. In this new vision, he sees rich, fertile country abound with game and fish and pleasant hunting grounds with fertile cornfields. He then continues to say that those in heaven, they hunt, they play their, normal, their usual games, and all things are unchanged. Essentially, Lalawithika wakes up a new person. He stops drinking immediately and starts preaching. He changes his name to Tenskwatawa, which means he, he opened the sky for the red man to go through the master of life or in short, the open door. Americans would know him closer to the prophet. He then goes around and starts to preach to other tribes in the area. He denounces the chief who signed the Fort Greenville Treaty and not only believed that they shouldn't have signed the treaty, but they should have nothing to do with the Americans and the white men in general. So after he wakes up, he despises America and hates them and wants nothing to do with them anymore. Not only them, not only him, but he goes into, do you remember a time when the Americans weren't here and everything was great? So basically heaven in his vision. It is, it's essentially like every, I don't want to say like, it's not a nostalgic thing, but because they've been moving for 30 years, if there was just a time before the Americans moved in, everything was, you know, fine. You still had to deal with the British. You still had to deal with, you know, competing tribes. But it isn't this situation it is right now. If we could just go back to where it was, everything would be better. So if they would follow him. Uh, so Tenskwatawa preached that if the tribes would follow him, the white men would eventually go away as they would be no match for the master of life's red children. He forbids any action with white men. Sex between the tribes and the Americans is now forbidden. If they had any clothes given to them by the Americans, they had to get rid of it. They were not even allowed to eat the food that the Americans would eat. And most importantly, they must give up alcohol immediately. All this sounds great to surrounding members. He has mess. He not only goes around to other tribes. He actually has messengers sent out for him. 
whatever he spoke and unfortunately there's just not that much written down like of his dictation but he had to give a hell of a speech and a hell of a performance we'll see a little bit of that a little bit later on but whatever he talked about people bought in and it was the right time for that particular message to hit that particular group of people Tecumseh believes his brother is a conduit for the master of life and even has supernatural powers, and he even embraces his brother's vision. Are him and his brother even close at this point? Yes. Well, yes. So Tecumseh is a big deal in the tribe. He is not well-known at all outside the tribe. In fact, there's really no particular Shawnee that is about to rise. Both of these are about to break up. Right, but I mean, I was just curious if they were actually close because, you know... He was drinking and everything. I didn't know if Tecumseh liked that or what. Well, he was close enough to pay for his, to support his wife and children. And when we get to his episode, Tecumseh is, I don't think, he wouldn't do that for a lot of people. We'll put it that way. So I will say close, yes, but um, he's closer than you would think. Okay, so did they become closer then when uh, he had the visions then? Oh, we'll get into it, but they, they're very much a team with very different strengths. Uh, but both could give really good speeches. And also helps, Tecumseh is also a chief at this point, so for anyone to start banding together unity and like, because like the most dangerous thing you can have is hope, <laughs> and he's giving hope, but like the Shawnee and other tribes, they have no other option. It's it's despair. It's real bad. The next move is a little bit troublesome, depending on who you listen to, uh, because Tenskwatawa wants to move his tribe onto the American side of the Fort Greenville Treaty, saying this is where the Master of Life would like us to show him we'll be able to stand for a hundred years. Now, in reality, he was actually invited onto that land because there's another rival medicine man that would like to keep his eye on the prophet um, and invites him to stay on this land. But like I said, it happens to be on the American side of the treaty line, which wouldn't you know it, the Americans not too keen on that decision to move, probably also uh, not understanding quite the irony of a native tribe moving onto their land and not exactly liking it. Now I'm going to jump around the timeline just a little bit so some of this is in the background but the main story i'm going to tell here actually happens three years later in 1809 and we're in the 1806 period so just know the shawnee are moving their land onto the american side of the treaty and i'm going to jump ahead the timeline just because it made sense in my head to talk about it all right here on the american side of the line is a very ambitious man territorial governor named William Henry Harrison, who we're going to get real familiar with in a hurry. He will eventually become the president one day. He wants to stop being a territorial governor because he wants to be a state governor. Well, how do you become a state governor? You need to start off with people to move on the land. Well, that's going to naturally happen. And you need to buy, basically take land or buy land from tribes. He finds three tribes in particular the Delawares, the Miami, and the Potawatomi's with land that he would really like to take, please. He's very careful 
on how he does this. He wants to call a meeting. He wants to do this peacefully. And he sends a letter to, uh, to tribes to see if they would be willing to sell their land. If he sent out a questionnaire, the questionnaire would have said, are you willing to say yes? Yes or no, please. If they said yes, they would be invited to this meeting. He calls a meeting at Fort Wayne. So he only wanted to bring Native Americans in that wanted to sell their land. He wasn't looking for a debate or to talk about it. It was, we want your land, and if you want to give it to us, then come on over. He was not negotiating in good faith by any means. He just wanted the he wanted those who would say yes to his terms, or at least were open to selling their land. So if your answer was no, I'm not here, he would just go on to the next one and say, Do you want to come? Do you want to come? So how many came? Uh, I have three tribes listed here. Uh, I think I have it written down. I don't have the top of my head though. But um, so he calls a meeting at Fort Wayne. And the negotiations open up, and the tribes collectively would be happy to sell their land at fair market value, which at that time was $2 an acre. And Harrison would think, great, that's wonderful. The thing is, though, I will happily offer you $0.02 cents an acre. So you're telling me a good price would have been $2 an acre. Yep. But he wanted to buy it for two cents an two acre. Two cents an acre. Hmm. I can't imagine too many of them being happy about that. I think a lot of them were just willing to go up, but then Harrison think, well, the, the tribes go, well, if that's your opening offer, this isn't going to happen, so we'll just pack up, please. And Harrison is like, hey, hold on, guys. Do you, do you see all of these soldiers right behind me? Boy, there's a lot of them, isn't there? They have, uh, they have pretty good guns, pretty big guns, right? Well, there's a lot more of them, and the guns only get bigger. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we sit around and negotiate for a little bit longer, shall we? But that's enough for tonight. Everyone, let's bring out the booze, because Harrison actually brought over 200 gallons of whiskey to this meeting. He knew what was going to happen. Uh, Yeah. So alcohol is handed out, and while the natives are drinking, Harrison would meet the chiefs in smaller groups, promising each chief and their tribes personally $500 a year in annuities until they finally agreed to two cents an acre. Harrison is then able to purchase 2.6 million acres of land from a likely very hungover set of tribesmen and the treaty. So his plan was if they didn't agree to it, get them drunk and have them sign it. Essentially. Now, before I can hear anyone yelling at the radios right now, there is a lot of negoti uh, American uh, precedents of these type of meetings happen, of these backroom deals where alcohol is served and, and all of that. Uh, you can think of probably... Uh, the election that got John Quincy Adams elected. You can think of Washington, D.C., Alexander Hamilton and Jefferson meeting that Washington, D.C. set uh, in its place. There is precedent of these type of meetings happening. However, I don't think it was with a very convenient set of soldiers standing behind them or with the history natives are now having with alcohol. 
it was intended. <laughs> like, there's no way he didn't do this on purpose. Even if you want to downplay the amount of alcohol over this meeting, there's no denying that the soldiers behind him, that Harrison wasn't going to get this deal done. Or he was going to bully his way until he got it done. Well, yeah, if he was confident or felt good about the deal, I don't think he would have brought so many soldiers with him. Well, so he also, like, they basically agreed to sell their land for him. I mean, he selected these leaders. I mean, he obviously knew he was shortchanging them and giving them a bad deal. And that's why he was like, you guys need to come with me because he knew it could get ugly, even though they were already willing to sell their land. We'll go more into basically the reaction of this more, but I don't, even if you gave Harrison some truth serum, I think he thought everything was okay. Like, he didn't do anything shady. I wonder if that was just, like, the mentality in in those times, you know? Just, that's what they expected. Kind of. It was, let's get planned as much as we can. So, the, Fort, the treaty at Fort Wayne royally pisses off anyone who was not part of the negotiation, because a lot of the land actually included not their, not uh, Miami, Potawatomi land. Tenskwatawa and Tecumseh are included. Professionally for the profit, it's really not a terrible time for this to happen. As Tenskwatawa is having some of the shine come off. Now again, we're kind of jumping three years later, but all of this is kind of happening independently, so keep that in mind. The natives believe that the treaty was an affront to the Great Spirit, and they called for the Master of Life, who had given the land to the Indians for exclusive use. The chiefs who signed the agreement were all condemned. Harrison sends a delegation to meet with this new prophet because, again, a lot of tribes now have interest in this prophet, Tenskwatawa. He just wants to keep an eye on it. Tenskwatawa claims that they, are, that they moved on the Fort Greenville side of the treaty. Uh, they were there because the Master of Life revealed that the place to him was best suited to teach his doctrines. The hunting ground and the fishing would be prosperous for this new place. Not going to lie. The delegates were probably wondering why Tenskwatawa had his fingers crossed behind his back the entire time he was saying this. So now we got to jump back to Tenskwatawa and some of those cracks that were showing in his armor. As any new religious movement, skeptics pop up. Tenskwatawa uh, threatens anyone who opposes him and accuses them of essentially witchcraft, that they were somehow in league with the United States. One such view come from an elder chief named Tempachit. Tempachit. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. He was found guilty of selling whiskey and accused him of poisoning a chief who had just happened to die from the influenza outbreak. Tempachit was last seen being drugged into the woods, and it is believed that his own son gave the killing blow of the tomahawk to the head. And he was just someone who spoke up against Tenskwatawa, that maybe he wasn't who he says he was. Next on the list was an elderly woman who spoke English fluently and lived in an American-style cabin. She was stripped naked and given a bath over the next four days with a combination of water and lye. You know lye. Lye is the chemical they use in the bathtub scene in Breaking Bad. Yeah, that's the uh, stuff that makes your body deteriorate, correct? Yep. The woman 
clearly delirious after four days, actually admits to being a witch, and that her grandson had even seen her riding her bundle. I'm not sure how old the grandson is, but he admits to actually seeing the bundle and flying it around the Mississippi and back. However, he only used it once, and he is let go unharmed. But the lady was put to death then? Uh, it doesn't say she was put to death. I assume she died because if you're... Well, I mean, I guess I was going to say it doesn't really matter if they put her to death because she just bathed in lie for, right. what was it, how many days? Four days. Yeah, four days. So Another chief is killed because he signed the land session treaty. Another is killed because he is half white. Another is killed over a campfire for simply praying in German. So it wasn't even... If you spoke English, it was any white, any language that wasn't ours. It takes a turn in a hurry. Keep in mind, it's not like I don't believe the crops are improving that much either. So keep that in mind, too. It's not like they're day to day. Everything rhetoric wise is fine. It's just. It's just not great still. <laughs> the, the core problems are not being addressed. Okay. William Henry Harrison has a problem on his hands. A significant amount of Native Americans are flocking to hear what this prophet has to say uh, while, he was on the Ameri- while he was on American land. Harrison has a thing, thinking he has a pretty good plan. Harrison asked Tenskwatawa for proof that he was a prophet and to, quote, ask him to cause the sun to stand still or the moon to alter its courses, rivers cease to flow or the dead to rise from their graves. If he does these things, you may believe that he is sent from God. Tenskwatawa hears Harrison's challenge and focuses on the phrase, make the sun stand still. Tenskwatawa probably had a really big grin on his face because, wouldn't you know it, a solar eclipse was scheduled to happen soon after Harrison made the declaration. While it's not making the sun stand still, It's a hell of a statement. Coincidentally for the Shawnee, a blacked out sun to the Shawnee is also a prelude to war. Oof, it's all falling into place, isn't it? Oh yeah. Now, uh, the the prophet gets a lot of followers to to come into Greenville, as many as he can, in fact, in order to answer Harrison's challenge. On June 16, 1806, Tenskwatawa stays in his wigwam all day to build up all the anticipation. He does not allow anyone to see him. Um, and he says that he is praying to work with the master of life in order to answer Harrison's challenge. Just as the moon is about to go over the sun, he then comes out and exclaims, behold, did I not speak the truth? See, darkness is coming. And then as promised, the crowd then looks up at the sun to see an eclipse. Not only was this an eclipse, this was a real powerful one. Some villagers were terrified it would last for months, that their crops would actually wilt and fail. The animals would die. Some people wrapped themselves up in blankets and simply just waited to die. Animals went back into sheds. This was a powerful eclipse. A lot of credibility is given to Kenskwatawa instantly. Hundreds now start to flock to listen to his preaching. Those who ever doubted him are now pushed off into the background. Even a group of shakers show up to listen to the prophet and told of the experience. They said, quote, 
All was silent for some time, and he began to speak, and with his eyes closed, continued his speech about half an hour, and was very eloquent in an emphatical matter. He sensibly bakes by the power of God, his solemn voice, grave countenance, and his very motion of his hand and gestures of his body. They were expressive in a deep sense of solid feeling and eternal things. A very remarkable pause or sentence. And a solemn ascended. William Henry Harrison never wrote down his reaction, but I did find it. And it was uh, William Henry Harrison walks out of the sun, probably having a cup of coffee. He walks out onto his deck and... No, no, no. Yep, that was absolutely William Henry Harris. <laughs> yep, that was the uh, straight recording from back then. It happened. Harrison is now in absolute damage control. In fact, he wants to call a meeting at Vincennes to talk to Pensquatel because of it. He sends a man named Henry Wells to deliver the letter. And in order to incentivize them, they even talk about a letter from Jefferson that doesn't actually exist in order to get the prophet into the, into the meeting. Uh, Tecumseh, however, accepts the meeting for Vincennes for his brother. Uh, we will go into this a whole heck of a lot in his episode, but we're going to leave it right there for now. So now we're now we need to kind of break off again and talk about the War of 1812. <laughs> So we're about 1809, eight, uh, 1809 going into 1810. Relationship with the Americans and the British have never been great. Uh, in fact, at this point, the British are seizing American ships simply because they can. The Americans, thinking they are somebody, want to fight the British. Or at least pride is getting in their way. They want to fight the British too, so that stop seizing their uh, their ships. So they want to fight them again. Again, after the Revolutionary War, they want basically they want seconds. Well, we beat them once; we can beat them again, right? Yes, they did. However, there's a big difference between fighting the British uh, on American soil and then fighting the British on with water. Because Navy, at this point for America, is essentially a couple two-by-fours and a rubber duck. There isn't much there to fight. So it's more pride that the Americans want to bring on this war. Essentially, they're going to get it. Harrison spends this time in the build-up uh, to the War of 1812, thinking the natives are going to attack and that they're being pushed into it by the British. Never mind his actions of treaty making may have had something to do with why they're upset, but it's all of the British pushing the native Americans into this fight. They're the reason they're upset. Tecumseh ally does end up allying with the British because it's just too much of a natural alliance. We'll go again. I've said this a lot, but we'll go into it in his episode, but essentially the British are in control of Canada, that's a very large border. The natives would be able to protect that border for them while also uh, with the intention of Native Americans would also have a seat at the, at the uh, negotiating table uh, when the war was over. So natural alliance, they start to fight together. But however, to, uh, Harrison is still blaming the British on why the natives are upset. 
Tecumseh at this point still isn't very well known. However, he's about to he's about to know him. Uh, Harrison does believe the prophet is a vile instrument of the British. However, eventually Temscotawa has to concede that the Shawnee will have to go and abandon Greenville the next spring. They have used up all of the resources of the land when you have a lot of people coming to pilgrimage and listen to you. You still need to feed them. You need to clothe them. Like, you, you need to take care of them while they're there. Well, we came for you. You got to feed us. Right. Well, then they would leave. They would come in, listen, and then go back. And that's how his word was spread. But while they're there, you need to uh, you need to feed them, like, the resources on the land. So the land that was supposed to last quite a while ends up lasting about two years. Um, but it makes an impact. Uh, they plan on moving for a place on the Wabash River, this time on the native side of the Fort Greenville Treaty, the place that was suggested by a Potawatomi holy man named Main Pock, who will probably get his own mini-episode one day because he is interesting and, well, he's not a good person, but he's interesting. On his way out of Greenville, Main Pock may have stopped by Fort Harrison to tell and Wells that many of the warriors had left Greenville. Since Wells and Harrison already believed that the prophet was up to no good, this just solidifies that training, that all of the, why were the warriors in Greenville if you're not planning to fight us? The establishment they set up is actually, is called Prophetstown in 1807. The Shawnee moved to modern-day Lafayette, Indiana, near the Tippecanoe River, where it really does keep, it does keep the Americans farther away, uh, which is great because it's preaching Tascotala's preaching, is now almost asking for a fight. Quote, watch the boundary line between the Indians and the white people. As if the white man puts his foot over, the warriors could easily push him back. Tascotala even oversaw the building of much of the town and must have been very pleased with himself because he said, we must not leave this place. We shall remain steadfast here to keep those who wear hats in check. Prophetstown is established. Uh, the same problems they had in Greenville happen to here. People move in, they stay for a bit, listen to his teaching, and they leave. That takes a lot of resources away from the land. It gets so bad that by the winter of 1810, tribal forces are forced to eat the horses, which is a real hit when you're, tr- when you're building up to war, whether they knew it or not. Uh, because horses are all you got around. So they didn't have enough food, so they had to eat their own horses. Correct. That they were then supposed to use to go to war. That they were they would need to come in to go to war. Whether they knew they were going to war right now is debatable, but it's dire when you have to start eating the horses. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? That's right. Uh, when dealing with the Americans, the two brothers had to change their tone completely saying that Prophetstown was an entirely peaceful venture. What made the Americans more skeptical skeptical was it was so relatively near a British fort named Fort Malden, where Tecumseh was starting to meet with British officers. When they're dealing with Harrison, however, Tenskwatawa commits heresy to his own religion. So do you remember we have to swear off everything American, right? Now there's no food. There's no resources. He tells Harrison that the great spirit told that he was to live in peace with the Americans. That's not true. Harrison believes this enough 
to at least get, start giving the native supplies. Tusquatalus meets with Harrison and makes a good appearance, promising again that the Great Spirit was showing him how to live with the Americans and wanted to ban the whiskey trade. And they, they would take up a tom- and that they would never take up a tomahawk against the Americans. Meeting with Harrison does good in the eyes of the Americans, but to his people, who he has been preaching for the last couple of years that the Americans needed to be removed, are now suspicious that he may be a false prophet. And then another round of influenza hits the tribe. This round, however, very few Shawnee get sick. It is so one-sided, many believe that it was actually the prophet poisoning other chiefs. What does your research say? I mean, I know that the tribe thought that he was poisoning them, but in the history books, were they able to figure out if he actually was the one doing it? It was just influenza. It just happened to hit different sections. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm sure by this point, some people are actually probably immune to it, right? Right. And like, we're now 1805, uh, we're like five years into him, and you now have had to move twice because resources the land aren't great. So, um, yeah, I, there's going to be doubters. <laughs> Especially when you think he's already had doubters and they've already been killed off. Some, however, want to test the Tenskwatawa's abilities. A band of Ojibwe and Ottawa challenged the Prophet's doctrine that the Great Spirit would not tolerate any violence in Prophet's town. The warriors simply kill a Shawnee woman and her child with tomahawks. Once they discover that nothing has happened to them and that the Great Spirit would not strike them down on the spot, they bring this information to Tenskwatawa, who probably with sweat beads rolling down his, his face, calmly says that the warriors did not kill the woman and child, that they were in fact already dead. The warriors had simply just mutilated the corpses, and it was just enough to keep people from revolting against Tenskwatawa. So he's losing it right now. Uh, from he's, the sounds of it, he it sounds like he's losing their trust and their faith in him, and he's doing everything he can to keep it. He's right? losing influence. Well, I mean, it's just crazy because for the longest time he was like, nope, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then years later say, actually, you know what? I just got done talking to him and uh, you can do all this stuff now. Oh, yeah, he's going against his own religion. So he's going to have, he's been saying for now years, don't deal with the Americans, they're evil. Don't trade with them. We just killed a lady because she lived in an American-style cabin. No, we watched her with lie. Like, it's essentially torture. And now he's saying... Oh, no, we need to live in harmony with these guys. They're good. Yeah, well, he's telling that to the Americans. He's not telling that to his tribe. Oh, okay. Because I can't remember if I cut this or not. He is now accepting... When he's accepting supplies, he's accepting food from the Americans. Which, by the way, he swore off American food. Right, he said no food, clothing, shelter, nothing like that. Now, to me... That's what a leader does, because if you can't feed your own people and you have a way to feed them, that's that's a good decision to get food to people that need it. But if you've just been spending the last couple of years, those followers you have grown, you have now grown and are now following you, that's taking a hit. So a series of meetings are going on. 
essentially Tecumseh is going around. He's already secured an alliance with the British. He then wants to go south to form a confederacy as far down south as Georgia. But he just has a nagging question on his mind right before he leaves. And he goes up to him and he goes, Brother Tensky, um, you're, you're great. You're wonderful. And, and, and I just can't get this thought out of my head that you're just not much of a war chief. So I'm going to go away for a while. And I know this doesn't need to be said, but just, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd feel better if I said this before we left. Right. So um, don't fight Harrison under any means. Who, me? Why would I fight Harrison? No, seriously. Um, you're not a fighter. You lost an eye out with an arrow by yourself. No, 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 no. I would never do that. No, 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 no. Let me just say this. Like, seriously, don't fight Harrison. You'll lose. You can trust me. I've never lied before. What's that behind this, brother? What's that behind your back? Oh, it's nothing. It's nothing. I uh, I had an itch. That's all. Is that a tomahawk? No, 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 no. Okay. Why are the two in the corner putting on war paint? No, 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 no. That's not war paint. Uh, that's makeup. They need to look good. Makeup. Seriously, don't fight him. Yeah, listen, look, brother. Go, 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 go. Don't worry about a thing. I got it under control. I promise you nothing's going to happen. And scene. Have we established that Tenskwatawa should not, by any means, fight Harrison? Harrison catches wind that Tecumseh, the war chief, is now gone and is probably giggling and skipping like a little girl because he now knows the that prophet's town is relatively undefended. Harrison now takes a thousand men with him. And for a scope, a thousand men is about half of the total forces that were supposed to fight the Amer- Native Americans. There is no secret Harrison on the move. Tensions rise within the village as the Americans get closer. Tenskwatawa feels the pressure to plan a preemptive strike. Again, Tenskwatawa is not a war chief. So it seems to me that when Tecumseh left, the prophet was like, I have to defend this. It's my duty. However, he's, uh, rather than bunker down and try and defend, he wanted to go on the offensive and attack before they actually attacked him. Uh, yeah, you're jumping in the future about five minutes, but yes, that's spot on what's about to happen. So I'll continue and then we'll get back to your point. So again, there's no secret that Harrison on the move. He is coming steady day by day. Tensions in the village rise because of the few young men that haven't been killed off in the years leading up to this, uh, young men are really good at wanting to fight even though they shouldn't. Tenskwatawa feels pressure to plan a preemptive strike. But the Americans aren't there yet. So Tenskwatawa, he's kind of in a holding period because he does not want to fight. He knows he's not equipped to do it. So he reaches out to other tribes to send backup, essentially to appease these younger voices that are in his village, right? So, however, those don't come by the time the Americans are now outside of Prophetstown. A delegation is sent inside, demanding that the town dispersed. Tenskwatawa and Harrison agree to meet the next day. 
And this is kind of a critical point because if Tenskwatawa is able to meet with Harrison, a fight might be averted. Because right now there's American soldiers and you have a lot of young warriors that really want to fight. But if Tenskwatawa can talk them out of it or at least come up with a deal, a fight might be averted. However, that night, many warriors want the fight and to fight now. Tenskwatawa then hides. I mean, <laughs> he communes with the Master of Life in his wigwam and comes out wearing a necklace with deer hooves and a string of sacred beads and announces a bevy of miracles and a plan of action. He proclaimed that the battle that must be fought at night. The darkness would shield the Indians from the Americans. He then promised that the light would shine like noontime sun to help guide the warriors. He then said his medicine would also disable American muskets. The natives would collect a horse load of scalps and a gun for every warrior and many horses. The women of his camp should have one of the white warriors use them as her slave and to treat how, she, how they would be pleased. The only thing the warriors had to do to guarantee the victory was to kill Harrison. Once this is done, the Americans would fall apart and scatter. There is some truth to that strategy. Most Native American attacks, when they are successful, especially when they have smaller numbers, rely on attacks, on sudden attacks. If they can overwhelm the American forces, it's going to look really well. It's going to be advantage to Native Americans. Native Americans also have a strategy of going after lieutenants and those who are going after the borders. A Native American fighter, essentially they're independent fighters. They do what they want. They strike. They're more mobile. American soldiers have to wait for orders to do a lot of things. Now, I'm not in the military. Mattis was in the military. I'm going to assume that's true. 100% all the time. You always have to wait for someone higher to give out the rules and what the mission is, and you have to do it. So what about in battle? How does that go? Typically how it goes is you are always given like a rules of engagement or some kind of battle plan um, before you go out on the mission. So that way you always know what's going to happen and what to do in those situations if they were to arise. Obviously, different situations are going to require different uh, rules of engagement. But you couldn't but no, independently fight. I couldn't independently just make a decision to go and attack whoever I wanted to, whenever I wanted to, just because I felt like it. So, right. Okay. Interesting. So, again, all the Warriors have to do is guarantee victory is to kill Harrison. Now, remember, he also said that his medicine would disable American muskets, i.e., you will not be shot. Going into battle. Put this on. I promise it'll be all right. Don't worry. Yeah, it'll be fine. Well, he's wearing the deer. He's wearing this. He's just telling them to go fight. So a preemptive strike is, strike is planned before the dawn the next morning. At dusk, a soldier hearing footsteps in the woods shoots and injures a native warrior. This begins the battle of Tippecanoe, which ears probably just perked, saying Tippecanoe. We'll go into that in a little bit. Native warriors short on number and firepower, 
out in firearms appear to break the lines of the American camp early on, but then the sun comes up and it's clear the Americans have the numbers. The, native are, the natives are forced to disperse knowing that the Americans would now be coming. So not only was it a route near the, near, uh, the camp, they now know the Americans are going to come into Prophetstown. Tenskwatel and the camp move before the Americans can enter the camp. Harrison had confidently proclaimed that the Battle of Tippecanoe was decisive and it would put an end to the native attack on settlements. This battle makes Harrison an American hero. And not only stays in, it stays with him for so long that he actually uses Tippecanoe and Tyler II Mantra to help him win the presidency in 1840, approximately 30 years after the battle. So essentially what happened, the Native Americans attacked Harrison's camp. It failed. Harrison came and burned everything to the ground. There is no more prophets town. On Tenskwatawa's side, he now has to explain to the surviving warriors why everything he said would happen didn't. And he must have been scrambling because what the, his excuse for what happened was that when he was communing with the great spirits, are you ready for this? His wife neglected to tell him that she was menstruating and that the, quote, foolish woman had not told him. She had actually helped him communicate with the great spirit in prayers, and she manipulated his sacred string of beads. And this was enough for the warriors not to kill Tenskwatawa. So all the warriors were just like, oh, yep, he's right. Gotta listen to him. He's right. Dang it. Can you imagine the icy stare coming from that wigwam? Well, they didn't do anything to her, did they? Because that would be terrible. Uh, no, but you try putting that on your significant other of why these people were just killed. Um, by the way, apparently warriors understood that the menstrual blood could nullify the strongest medicine, the strongest of all medicine men as they were trying. Oh, so that was like a, a standard uh, thing they all believed? That was a thing they would have known. I would like to hear the continuation of that story. Like, hey, honey, let's, uh, or Tenskwatawa coming uh, after the speech, like, wow, honey, we really dodged a bullet there, didn't we? Boy, that was real close. Yes, honey, why don't we go inside the wigwam and talk about it for a bit? And then you just have the cartoon figure of, like, Tenskwatawa screaming my leg for the next two hours and a frying pan hitting him on the side of the face. The Tecumseh comes home, and he reprimands his brother. He shakes him and is incredibly angry with him, but ultimately doesn't cut ties with his brother. However, this is kind of the end of the road for the prophet, uh, who is not in real power again. Tecumseh sets out to regather the native Confederate's forces, the ones he just lost, and from his trip uh, down south. This is now a very motivated Tecumseh, and Tecumseh finds out that the Americans declare war against Britain, thus starting the War of 1812. The British, now needing native help to secure the Canadian border, look to Tecumseh and the Native Confederation. 
After Prophets Down, however, this really is the last true moment of Tenskwatawa's influence. He remains an important leader to his people, but it becomes Tecumseh's show for the next couple of years. During the War of 1812, Tenskwatawa becomes uh, a camp chief and spends the War of 1812 again in the background. Being a camp chief is no way unimportant. It's just not really podcast-worthy to talk about. Essentially, he spends the next 20 years of his life moving his tribe around. He and his tribe end up running to Canada, uh, as Harrison did ban them from the United States after the War of 1812. Uh, The few that did follow him struggle, and I don't necessarily believe uh, this has begun with Tenskwatawa. Again, they're just a people that are constantly moving. In the 1820, he moves to Mississippi Territory under Governor William Clark, who doesn't really see much of his influence. And unfortunately, in 1832, Tenskwatawa becomes sick. A doctor is summoned for him. The doctor then realizes, once he realizes it, it is Tenskwatawa, says, quote, the spectacle of a man whose word was law to so numerous tribes is now lying is now lying as a miserable pallet dying in poverty and neglect he is sick enough to ask for a white man's medicine which again is going against his old religion but he wants to meditate on it before he takes it so he knows he's sick he's willing to take the medicine but he wants to meditate on it he asked the doctor to leave for three days and to come back and then the doctor said, quote, I returned to the cabin punctually in three days, but it was too late. He was, in, he was speechless and evidently beyond the reach of any human aid. Tenskwatawa later died that day. And to give you an idea of how important they thought he was, the doctor did not think to write down what he died of or the date Ugh, he died. I was just about to ask you what he died of. 1832 is the only real thing. Uh, so we'll never know what he died of. There's no way to figure it out. Is there at least like some sort of speculation or anything like no, that? He was just an old man by that point. Lost a lot of influence. Lost a, had a hard life. Yeah, he had a it was pretty like, rough last couple years, huh? Right. So now we need to depressingly transition into rating him. Our first round, our biography round, are you satisfied? So Matt and I will give out a score between negative 10 and positive 10 on what we thought of his overall story. And, boy, it's not good, is it? (laughs) Yeah, he for sure had a lot of stuff happen to him. He had to deal with a lot. He had to deal with a lot, and I can't... Again, it's awkward breaking these two up. I think he is absolutely worthy talking about, but anytime you hear his story, it is inside of Tecumseh's story. And yeah, Tecumseh, almost like he's a secondary character, but I mean, look at it. I mean, he did do a lot. He did, well, he had a vision. A lot happened around him. He was a spark for a people who desperately needed a spark. So... If you look at what he did, he was a drunkard. He has a vision. He then uses his vision and his religion to prosecute against or persecute against his own people who speak out against him. He then is then told explicitly not to attack the incoming army. 
and then is unable to lead that same like is unable to not stop that fight from happening to where a true leader to me even if you want to say i can't stop these individuals from fighting you just move when the when the americans are about like you you just know <laughs> like i don't think there's any reason for him to have thought he was going to win at Tippecanoe. right well i mean he did come up with a lot of stuff um he created all these things that he told them that just weren't true you know like hey if we attack at night we'll get them there'll be a weapon for all of us um we'll definitely succeed in victory so it was i think it was a collective group on we need a preemptive strike and surprise run but it was him that said Okay, let me double down on this on this idea by saying you will be protected by from American musket fires if you kill Harrison. That's simply it's irresponsible. Well, I mean, it's just interesting to me because a lot of the youngins, you know, they're like, fight, fight, fight. We want to fight. We don't care. Let's just fight. Well, and so, this is no surprise for anyone who follows military history. And like, I'm not a big military history guy, but the young ones are always the ones that want to fight. You have to be able to deal with I just thought it was interesting that um, I feel like he should have known better. Yes, if you're the leader. And I think a lot of my issues with him need to go on to the next round. So his story as a whole, I don't believe if we're continuing the movie, uh, theme if we we're gonna go watch this movie what would we rate it he is not a good lead he is a good secondary character but also i don't i don't believe he has a positive influence on the story he is a spark he is a starting off point but name something positive other than he never drank alcohol again after his vision which is a plus because overcoming addiction hell of a thing Right. How he held, we'll go into the next round, but how he, what he did after that, I don't believe is positive. So I, I think I am actually going negative. I'm barely going negative because we also have to be careful. Uh, I'll actually for the next round. Um, I'm going to go negative, but barely. I'm going to go negative one because I don't, I don't believe he's a positive influence on the story. You know, I agree with you. I think that he was uh, always overshadowed by Tecumseh for a reason. And I'm actually looking forward to Tecumseh's episode to find out how much, I don't want to say better, but better Tecumseh was as a leader than he was. I just feel that he made a lot of mistakes and he could have done a lot better. So with that, I am also going to go negative. Um, I think I'm going to go ahead and give him a negative three. Okay, that is a score. Can you? And I actually went with two, so I'm actually a negative four is I think a decent, uh, a decent score for him. Okay, our next round. Be sure you are right. Then go ahead. This is essentially our morality round. So negative ten to positive ten. We will continue. This is the category I have the biggest issue with, with him. He seems, and we again, we haven't gotten into Tecumseh. That will be coming in literally after we do this rating. But he seems like he grows up in the shadow of his brother. And he just seems to want to 
always outshine his brother. That's how he comes across from me. Even though he doesn't, how do I want to phrase this? I don't believe he lives up to it. And he knows he's not up to it. I believe he, like has, he lives in his brother's shadow. He lives in his brother's shadow and he's trying so hard to come out of his brother's shadow. He will say and do whatever he has to do. Well, I mean, even when he does come out of his brother's shadow, and I say that with air quotes because uh, Tecumseh is still always there, um, even though Tecumseh believes in him. I mean, he he goes along with his plan. He follows through with it. Um, I just feel like, you know, he's trying to, what is it, uh, sell snake oil or uh, give him snake oil? He's a snake oil. He, he seems very used car salesman to me. And I want to be careful when we say that because this is, Whatever he said, they believed him. They need, but they needed to believe him. There was no hope for the Shawnee or for these surrounding tribes at this point. Right. So it's almost like they would have followed anyone that spoke to them. Yes. Period. I think you can stop it right after that. I don't think you. So he. When. He's very frustrating to me because he gets, he gives hope and then he uses that hope irresponsibly. When you are going to preach that everything will go back to the way things were, but you have to get rid of the Americans. But then those who don't let follow my lessons, um, we're going to have your child drag you off into the woods and kill you. We're going to wash a woman with lie. Um, now again, I don't know if these were exactly his punishments and like him telling them to go do it, but it's not great. And then the biggest thing I have an issue with him is telling his warriors that he had to have known was a bad idea, telling his warriors, you will be essentially shielded from musket fire going into a battle is irresponsible. And it's, I don't want to say stupid, but it is. It's irresponsible. You had to have known that's something you cannot back up. Even if you want, even if you want to give Tenskwatawa the the benefit of the doubt, that's irresponsible to say, especially when he's not the one going into the battle. Right, I agree with you one hundred percent. So this, I want to. Uh, I'm still. I'm going to go negative again. It is not the worst we are going to see by any means. So I am going to go negative, but I feel like this is negative morality as in I'm very disappointed in you. You should know better rather than it's you're a psychopath and you're just a terrible person. So I'm just going to, I'm going to go with negative two because we are definitely going to see worse, but he's not positive. You know, I am also going to go negative. Um, I'm going to give him a negative three because I feel like I 100% believe he could have had those visions, you know, and he believed it. But you get to a certain point where he probably was like, these guys don't believe me anymore. I'm, I'm going to have to keep going. Um, I'm going to have to keep, you know, seeing these visions and, um, I mean, he led them into a losing battle, um, basically saying that they were okay. And to me, that is just, you know, unacceptable. So 
I'm going to go ahead and give him a negative three. Negative five is his total score. Next round. Hell with the consequences. Was he crazy or clever? Uh, again, we're handing out scores from negative 10 to positive 10. Uh, and if he was crazy or if he was clever, um, I don't think he was crazy. I don't think, I think he was very clever though. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I feel like he was clever in the way that he could get people to follow him and um, lead a tribe in that sense. Yep. I feel like he got in the deep end of the pool and realized he was wrong. Right, and I mean, he knew exactly what to say to keep him afloat instead of sinking right to the bottom. I don't... I don't think he was crazy, even though I could say telling your warriors you're going to be shielded from bullets is not clever. Um, I'm just, I'm going to stick with a zero on this one. I don't think I could go positive on here a couple points, but I think, yeah, actually I will go, I will go one point positive for him because I don't think he was crazy. He did give people hope. I just wish he used it more responsibly. I'm going to go ahead and give him a zero because I think he was clever, but not clever enough. You know, he was clever in the sense that he was able to have these visions and get a bunch of people to follow him, but not so much in the sense that they were able to stay with him. Eventually, you know, it went away. Right. Okay. That is a score of one. So now we are going to pause because he is actually our first negative score uh, after the first three rounds. He's at negative eight. So from here on out, we are no longer going to be adding points between draw, legacy, and death bonus round. Um, we are going to continue to subtract. So whatever points that we do give him from zero to ten will just continue to be subtracted to his score. So next round is draw. If Matt and I were facing him off in a duel, how screwed are we in this duel? And I feel completely safe. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I'm feeling pretty safe on this one. I mean, he did shoot his own eye out with an arrow, so the arrow's already pointed at him. He could have got a better shot. He could have. So I'm, I'm going zero. I know no reason to give him a positive point on the score unless we want to say could he influence people to do his fighting for him now i think we have a case <laughs> you must go duel for me um someone listen what'd you give him as a score again i'm gonna switch mine with that line of thinking i'm doing one because i think he could talk someone into doing his fighting no, nah, I'm going to keep mine at a zero. I am very, very confident that I don't think he would be able to do that. No, yeah, that's fair. Okay. Next round, Legacy. How well known is he? Uh, this one's touched the gauge because we're going to be handing out a score between zero and positive ten. He is not well known. Matt, did you know his name before I mentioned him? Nope. I had never heard of him before in my life. My guess is most people, if they know him, they know him through Tecumseh. So if we're long, if we're jumping him onto his legacy, 
then he might get a couple points. Right, like, uh, hey, but, remember Tecumseh's brother? Right. Um, I do think he deserves some because he is the spark to the rise of Tecumseh. I will say that. He, if he does not have that vision, there is no Tecumseh. Well, there's still a Tecumseh. He would still exist, but I don't think he would have nearly the influence. So I am going to give him a couple legacy points. I'm going to go 2.5. I think I'm going to go with um, 2. You're going 2. So because he is already negative, we're going to continue to subtract points. Okay, death bonus. He just died. They didn't even write it down. I don't know how we can do it. You know, it's so unfortunate that um, he died and they didn't even think to, you know, write down the cause of death or when he died. I think we had, like, what, the date or maybe the time he died. So, yeah, I think uh, we give him just a zero points because, yeah, you really can't uh, get any points for... That unfortunate ending. Right. Okay. Counting coup. How many people did he kill? Him personally? He didn't. Yeah, he didn't kill anyone. So, um, yeah. He's a really interesting figure. I do kind of hate the visual that our first Native American leader is in negative points, but I, I feel confident behind her scores. But it is interesting that we have talked about confirmed killers and they're in positive scores, and yet he is our first negative score and he has not killed anyone. I stand behind our score, so I do want to point that out. That is a little bit. So, uh, with that said, we need to draft him. Or do we? <laughs> so... I'll be honest with you. So this is where we flip a coin and based off of whose rosters have what, um, that coin flip depends on who gets first pick on Tesco Tower. Um, I don't even think we need to flip the coin. Are you going to draft him? I am not going to draft him. Okay. I am also going to pass on Tesco Tower, so I don't even think I'm going to give him the coin. So he will go into the free agent pool then. Yes, he will. I'm sorry, Tenskotella. You had a good you had a good run for a good, for a bit. But don't tell your soldiers that. They're going to be fine in battle on the fire. And maybe we will respect you a little more. Okay, that is it for Tenskotella, the prophet kind of a downer next episode is a little bit more inspirational <laughs> uh, sorry if this bummed everyone out this is why we're putting out two episodes today because this is not the taste i wanted to put in everyone's mouth so we will be back the next time you hit play as always we are always on a bunch of social media we are on facebook our facebook group page is ranking 76 on the American West podcast, go ahead and 
hit join that group. Me and Eric will definitely accept you into the group. We are on Instagram. It's seventy uh, ranking seventy six podcast. We have an email ranking seventy six pod at gmail dot com. Uh, go ahead and send us any feedback you have. We would love to hear from you. Um, as always, we are on multiple platforms for um, our podcast. So go ahead and um, share, subscribe, like, do um, all that jazz. We would very much appreciate it. Um, and, you know, we are very responsive. So if you have any feedback, just go ahead and give us a shout and we will get back to you. We much appreciate it. And as always, I am Matt. <laughs> Eric choking on Snapple. <laughs> Goodbye. We'll see you next time. <laughs>